Good morning, Outlook family. Sure is good to see everyone this morning, whether you're joining us here in the room or you're with us online. It is good to be together, and I'm looking forward to digging into God's Word this morning. Aren't you? I know, we all are. Well, let me begin by sharing some interesting information about um, uh, something that would have happened when Jesus was just in his late teens. When Jesus was about that age, Caesar Augustus died. And Tiberius Caesar took his place. We're talking about the emperors of the empire of Rome. Now, here in our nation, we're used to a new president every four or eight years. But back at the time of the Roman Empire in Jesus' day, this kind of transfer of power didn't happen very often. And it was a huge deal. And to make things clear and to keep things stable... Such news would need to be shared throughout the empire as thoroughly and efficiently as possible. And, spoiler alert, with no internet, no TV, no radio, no newspaper, the way that happened was through heralds being deployed to move through every town and city, often with a squad of soldiers uh, with them in case things got rowdy. And those heralds would step into each town and proclaim, good news, Tiberius Caesar is emperor. Now this would have been normal. And Jesus likely heard and saw exactly that take place. Now, let's zip forward a few years as Jesus begins his ministry. What did that beginning look like? Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 14, says this, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. Quote, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. How it looked and sounded was a lot like a transfer of power. It was both a reminder that God is in charge and an announcement that this was about to be true in an amazing and long-promised way because He was the Messiah, Savior of the world, and God's chosen King. Now, this verb that we see here, to proclaim, means to declare openly after the manner of a herald, something which has been done, always with the suggestion of formality and gravity and authority that what's being said should be listened to. So he moves into Galilee and begins to proclaim the kingdom of God is here. In Luke chapter 4 we read, uh, when he was in Capernaum and they were kind of hoping he would stick around because they liked him, they wanted him to stay in town, he says this, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also. Right? Because that's what a herald was doing, would do, because that's why I was sent, he says. In Luke chapter 8, it says that Jesus traveled from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women. So he had his own squad uh, going with him from town to town. I love this. Men and women were in his crew there, heralding the good news of the kingdom of God breaking in, entering into lives in a new and deep 
way. They would make their way from town to town. And you can picture this group, fishermen, uneducated, we're told, men and women, which the Roman Empire would have never thought to do. How unofficial, right? How unpowerful, how unkingly they must have looked, dusty and just walking from town to town. No trumpets, no banners, no soldiers, just this dusty group of people who are in love with God and convinced that Jesus was bringing about His kingdom. And He was, wasn't He? We're wrapping up this series today. We've been looking at all the things that Jesus did and who He is and when He healed. When He told someone to get up and walk, like we talked about a few weeks ago. When He partied with so-called sinners and all the religious people got upset. When He forgave someone their sins. Something that should only be happening at the temple with sacrifices and priests and on and on. And Jesus does that. It's a lot like walking into town and declaring, there's a new emperor. There's a new power in charge. God's kingdom has arrived. We've been looking over these last several weeks that Jesus is God. Jesus is Savior. He's Lord. He's Healer. He's Teacher. He's Shepherd. And we end today by reminding ourselves that He is King. That Jesus is all these things. And to accept Him at all is to accept Him as all of these things. Not just one or a few, right? We might like Him as teacher, but Lord sounds a little heavy, and King, that's, that's way out there. Or we may appreciate Him as healer or be thankful for Him as Lord, but He is all of these things. And we accept Him for all the things that He is. And today we focus on the fact that He is a King beyond compare. A big kingdom beyond our dreams, but not beyond our grasp. In fact, that is the good news of the kingdom. That it's there for us to live in. It's a kingdom of grace and truth, of love and justice, of compassion and joy and spiritual power, which is the most essential kind. Amen? And so we're going to look at three implications of this reality that Jesus is King. And the first implication is this. We as Christians live as subjects of this King. That we have come to realize Jesus really is King of the world, King of the universe, and we've made Him our King. Now this whole idea of Jesus as King at first confused His followers as much as it confounded and incited His enemies. His kingship was a problem for people. He wasn't the King the Jews were expecting, and no one should be talking about becoming a King in the Roman Empire. It's more than anything else what got him, from an earthly perspective, sent to the cross. And why the sign posted there over his cruelly crowned head testified not to his teaching, or his healing, or even his deity, but to his kingship. We are the people who see it. We are the people who are are happy that he really is king, and we are his subjects. And more than that, he calls us his friends. We are friends of the king. It's his kingdom that we pray in. It's his kingdom that we seek first. Remember his instructions when the disciples asked, teach us to pray. That Lord's prayer that we say, your kingdom come. 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And a little later in Matthew 6.33, He reminds us not to worry, but instead to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And all that other stuff will be given to you as well. It's His kingdom that we seek first. It's His kingdom we are praying in. His reign, His rule in our lives and in the lives of every human heart, as we sang earlier. Now here's the thing about kings. You don't just believe in kings, right? You submit to them. They're king, and we decide we're not, right? That's a tough word, submit. The alternative to submitting is, of course, rebelling. Rebelling against Jesus as king. And honestly, if we are honest with ourselves, we can be sometimes good church-going folks who are in some areas of our lives rebelling against King Jesus. Is that only me? Okay, I'm glad it's not only me. Examples of this rebellion can come in all kinds of ways, right? Our emotions. Sometimes we, for instance, choose to stay angry and in unforgiveness, right? Or our relationships. We find ourselves slipping into gossip or put-downs or power plays. That's because we're in charge at that moment, right? Jesus isn't king of our relationships in those moments. Or our money. We, do, we convince ourselves, I earned it, I can do whatever I want with it. Or our bodies. What feels good? What's satisfying or comfortable? There are all kinds of moments in which we can end up wearing the crown. Daily decisions that just decide we're in charge. We've all been there. When we make Jesus our king, we are deciding that it's up to him what's right and what's not. And we spend our lives then learning what that means and looks like. So the ultimate problem for us is that each of us wants to be our own king or queen, right? The king and queen or queen of our own universe. And so in this first uh, point here, I just want to invite you to once again crown Jesus your king. I stink at being a king. Maybe you're good at it, but I bet you're not, if I'm honest, and we need to make Jesus our king. Amen? We need to decide he knows so much better than we do. And just let him be on the throne of our lives. So the first implication of this reality is pretty straightforward. We live as subjects of Jesus as king. That also means, secondly, we live as citizens of his kingdom. See, something begins to happen in us as believers. As we begin to grasp the beauty of Christ's kingdom and what it means to live under his rule and reign, his very good and healthy rule and reign, we begin to see that earthly kingdoms even nations that have come and will one day go, or the push and the pull of things like politics or popularity or success or on and on, we begin to realize these don't deserve our allegiance. We kind of cut the chain that was kind of jerking us around in, from all of those directions. Check out this powerful conversation between the Roman governor and Jesus after Jesus had been arrested. So Jesus is having a conversation with uh, the governor of that area of the Roman Empire. His name is Pilate. 
Pilate's having this conversation. He asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus has been arrested. He's been sent to Pilate. He's been beaten. Um, uh, He's on trial, so to speak. And this is what Jesus says in verse 36 of John 18 to Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. So Jesus is having this conversation with what you would easily be able to see as someone with plenty of political power, plenty of of societal power, plenty of Roman Empire type power, right? The ability to free Jesus, the ability to condemn Jesus. He wants to get to know Jesus a little bit. He's asking, the the whole conversation's really great. I'm just uh, highlighting this part for today's purposes. My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus says. And then he begins to see, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would behave differently than they are. My servants would fight to prevent my arrest. But he's essentially saying to Pilate, but their fight is not with you. And we as Christians today can end up fighting far too often against what the Apostle Paul called mere flesh and blood, right? We begin to fight against people When really we begin to, if we back up and we begin to see, wait a second, I'm a citizen of a kingdom, not of this world. There are powers at play, not also of this, also not of this world. And that is where the real fight is. The fight is in love against apathy and hate. The fight is in prayer. The fight is in encouragement and righteousness and good moral choices and being there for each other and being there for those in need that we begin to see that the real fight It's against the powers of darkness, not just individual people. He says, their fight is not with you. Otherwise, they would have grabbed their sword and tried to free me from your Roman power. But instead, here I stand because my kingdom is from another place. Your political power is barely a blip here, Jesus says to Pilate, essentially. And so the disciples don't take up arms to defend the dignity of their king because something larger was happening. And friends, there's always something larger happening. That's what it means to live in the kingdom of God. Amen? We begin to just apprehend and appreciate that there are always larger things happening than what might first be presented to us in our world. And so we end up, as people of the kingdom, not placing our faith in empty, propped-up power, not getting coaxed into caring more about winning arguments than winning souls, not getting baited into debating secondary subjects while we neglect primary responsibilities. All the while, the world desperately needs us because we're the only ones who can to bring the kingdom come on earth. Amen. Through personal love and compassion and advocacy and practical help, these are the things that we like to be about here at Outlook. Hands-on, real work in our world. That's the kingdom that we're called to bring. Now Pilate says, when he hears Jesus say this, Pilate's response is, you are a king then. Jesus answers, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. In other words, again, Jesus deflects the idea that he's there to um, uh, threaten Pilate's political power. Because that's what Pilate's listening for, right? Oh, wait, are you a king? Because if you're a king, I know what to do about that. I'll get rid of you. That's what we do here in Rome. 
Jesus bypasses that, even though he is absolutely the king of all kings. He's saying that's not, in, in, at the moment, even the full point. The full point here is what's true? What's true? What's real? And this is the distinctive of my kingdom, Jesus says. It's not political allegiances. It's not what you're against. It's what is true. Let's all be pursuers of what's real and true. We long for a leader, don't we, who will tell us the truth. What we've realized is we'll only find such a one in Jesus. That's why we're citizens of his kingdom, first and foremost. Next chapter, it says that Pilate Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Check this. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Now the line has been drawn. Here, And we begin to realize it is Jesus' kingship that is going to end up sending him to the cross from this earthly point of view. Because they are recognizing that he has a spiritual power that will, that will absolutely uh, overcome any political power that's there. And that's all they want, is their power. Those Jewish leaders, they want to hoard their power. Remember Acts 17. This is now, now we skip ahead to when uh, the early Christians the, are, are out there doing their thing and the word is spreading. And, and there are, there's a riot and people are bringing these Christians out of, a, out of a guy named Jason's house. And what's their accusation to those Christians? These men who've caused trouble all over the world have now come here. They are defying Caesar's decrees and saying what? There is another king, one called Jesus. And that's what we do. Wherever we go, we are essentially declaring another king is on the real throne. That throne that transcends the beginning and end of any nation or ideology or social upheaval or problem. That throne is larger and will last longer than any and all of that combined. And he's our king. He's the one we really owe our allegiance to. And all else is just while we have these few and fleeting days that you and I get on earth, all else is just a work of love to bring about as much um, rightness and goodness in the lives of others as we possibly can. That's the real kingdom. See, these early Christians, they lived their lives as citizens of Christ's kingdom. And where that kingdom conflicted with the world's systems, then, well, okay, it simply did. And they calmly persisted. Think of Jesus and Pilate. If if my kingdom were of this world, my followers would take up arms and try to free me. But something larger is happening here. And where there is no friction, even though the world will go on getting things wrong and missing the point, we can all count on that. They didn't go looking for a fight. They just kept looking for opportunities to love and to serve and to make a difference, and to model what life in God's kingdom looks like. There were bigger and more important eternal things. Let's keep loving everyone. Let's keep serving the poor. Let's keep releasing those trapped in abuse and injustice. Let's keep looking out for the weak and the rejected and the disenfranchised. That's the work of the kingdom. And somewhere, sometime, somehow, some Christians have gotten the idea that to be good ones, good Christians, that is, They needed to be consistently angry with the world when its compassion 
and humble service to which we're called. Because finally, because we live in God's kingdom, our eyes become a bit more open and we begin to see just how passing all of this is. And what counts is each human soul, where they stand before God and how we can take the best care of them possible as people who've come under the kingship of our Lord Jesus. This is the way Paul put it in Philippians chapter 3 when regarding the world, so to speak, he says, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, their appetites, and their glory is in their shame. In other words, it's an upside-down world. Their mind is set on earthly things. And this is what we as citizens of the kingdom, have to make sure we don't fall into, right? Setting our minds merely on earthly things. There's plenty of earthly work to do, but to be set, not on heavenly things, but first on earthly things, begins to skew our point of view. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's to Him we look for hope. It's in Him we place our faith. And to Him we owe our allegiance. We are people who are simply learning to live in that kingdom. And so we are subjects of this king. We are citizens of this kingdom. And thirdly, we get to live as ambassadors of his kingship. When we think of kings and kingdoms, this isn't something that we as Americans probably give a lot of thought to, we might first think of being constricted by a dictator, right? Kings, that's what we fought to free ourselves from 200 plus years ago, right? But our king, King Jesus, is about liberty. And his kingdom is about setting people free, amen? That we follow a king who uses his power and authority for good, not for himself. That's the kind of king that we get to know and be ambassadors for. Let me read a few things from a book that uh, our staff recently finished and one that we've come to appreciate. It's called Oneness Embraced by Dr. Tony Evans. Uh, Let me begin by reading this quote. There is a direct correlation, Dr. Evans writes, between the preeminence given to Christ as king and the freedom one experiences To the degree that Jesus is exalted in our personal lives, family lives, churches, and communities is the degree to which the rivers of justice run freely. Dr. Evans then then refers to Jesus' opening manifesto when when he read from the scroll of Isaiah the prophet in his hometown of Nazareth. Luke chapter 4 records this moment. You can think of it as his campaign speech announcing his candidacy. How, so when someone's going to run for president, right, they choose the location, has a lot of meaning, what they say sets the motion, kind of sets the pace for what they uh, want to be about as a candidate. Jesus grabs this scroll, chooses his hometown to do it in, and makes this announcement. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me. In the Old Testament, who got anointed? Prophets and kings. Jesus was both. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, and that the oppressed will be set free. So 
Jesus is proclaiming what His kingdom will be about. Let me read a little bit more from Dr. Evans, because I really like what he has to say. Jesus' Gospel, as recorded in Luke 4, is the good news that includes both the spiritual and the physical. To make His proclamation merely social is not good news. There are people who might be tempted to do that. We reject that. If a person has the best food to eat, the nicest clothes to wear, and the greatest job at which to work, and yet still dies without a relationship with Christ through his atonement, he ends up not having anything at all. Amen? That's true. Dr. Evans says, but to make his proclamation merely spiritual is not the full experience of good news either. To tell a person that Jesus can give him a home in heaven, but that he can't do anything about where he lives on earth... To tell them that all God's children have shoes in heaven, but that we'll all have to go barefoot on earth, isn't all that good news either. Jesus' gospel includes both the spiritual and the social. Unless, he says, social action is based on spiritual discipleship, it will lack the power of long-term transformation. I believe that down to my bones. And he concludes this, Secular society does not understand the spiritual reality that causes physical, social, political, and economic problems. That's true. Therefore, secular society, secular meaning society trying to do life apart from God or outside of God's counsel, therefore, secular society is limited in its ability to impact and transform society. And that's true. It's only as we begin to live and understand life in the kingdom that we can, through that lens, look at society and look for ways to help. Sometimes, though, I have to admit, it feels like secular society is trying harder than we are for transformation. And no one can fault them for that. But friends, we have what society is looking for in the gospel of the kingdom. So let's, you and I, spend our lives learning about what this looks like and teaching the world what love is and real justice is. Amen? See, we can get sidetracked parsing out what this world means by this term or that term when our precious time and energy can be better spent learning what Jesus means by the terms He uses. When His Word talks about compassion or justice, or oppression, or humble service, or meeting needs, or defending those who need it. Let's learn that, and let's get good at it. Amen? Because we get to expand His reign as ambassadors. And I'm convinced, when you bring Jesus to a situation, you are bringing justice, real justice, a real setting of things right from the inside out. In fact, there is no real justice without Jesus. That's the way it's supposed to work. Jesus said in Matthew 10 to his disciples, and I believe by extension to you and me today, as you go, in other words, wherever you're headed, whatever you're up to, as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. We get to be those ambassadors, those heralds, Proclaiming the reality of this king, his goodness and his grace and the beauty of his kingdom, its power and purpose. Friends, to even see the kingdom, we have to be born again, we're told. We must receive the kingdom like a little child. Our riches will make it hard for us to enter it, but there is a way. His name is Jesus. His kingdom grows like a seed, spreads like a little bit of yeast. And repentant sinners will always make it in before self-righteous religious saints. This is the kingdom that we get to share about. 
It's what the whole world's trying to construct. It's what we get to proclaim and bring. Let's pray about that. Lord, we declare you are a king, and you are a good king. You're our king. And so, Lord, in song now, we take the time to proclaim that you are the one that we crown, that we get to be the one who shares the news that there is a new power in town, so to speak. That we have come to understand that there's a beauty in your authority. And that it's our responsibility to share your goodness with all the people that we can, in every way we can. So we ask that you would help us to do exactly that. Jesus, we love you. And we declare you're our king. In your name we pray. Amen.